thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're trying something different. We're airing an authentic media snapshot, as we call it. It's a portion of one of the shows that are military aviation based from our friends over at Authentic Media. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here we go. Hi everyone, welcome back to Authentic. Today we're launching a new series and introducing a new host. Author Steve Davies is joining the Authentic family as a contributor and will be hosting our new series on the F-35. Many of you may be familiar with Steve from his podcast, 10% True, a link to which you can find in today's show notes. He's also the author of multiple books on aviation, including Red Eagle's America's Secret Mix. You can even find a discussion of that book between Steve and myself on our YouTube channel. But today we're talking about the F-35 specifically the background to the Joint Strike Fighter program that ultimately led to the F-35. This is the first in an ongoing series Steve will be hosting here on Authentic, so sit back and enjoy. This is Authentic. Press, welcome to this special series by Authentic Media on the F-35. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Steve, thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation. Press, that's before I introduce the audience to the concept of this series and, and how we're expecting it to flow. Let's just do a quick, quick set of introductions. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Who are you? Where'd you come from? Sure. Uh, John Wheeler, my call sign when I was flying was Press. I just retired two years ago from the U.S. Air Force. I retired out of Eglin Air Force Base in Northwest Florida. Uh, my career, I entered in 1992 at the Air Force Academy, got commissioned in 1996 there in Colorado. And then I spent uh, the next 26 years uh, doing various jobs throughout the Air Force, primarily in the F-16. I was then part of the initial cadre of the F-35 uh, in uh, 2010 to 2012. Went back to the F-16 and then returned to the F-35 as the uh, wing commander of the 33rd Fighter Wing which is one of two training bases in the United States for new F-35 pilots. That's a very impressive career. Well, we're, we're excited to have you on and we're excited to hear your, um, uh, your insight into the F-35 program. So, uh, and just oh. for anybody at home who's, who's curious to know about me, so my name's Steve Davies. I'm a um, military aviation journalist, aerospace and defense journalist, and um, I'm probably best known for the book Red Eagles, but I wrote uh, 18 other books. And today I also run the 10% True podcast. Um, so I'm collaborating with uh, Authentic Media to bring you this series. Uh, Press is one of the guests that we have on. Um, we're going to split this out into probably five or six episodes. Um, we're going to start by, by today talking with Press about the requirements, the things that led up to the necessity for the F-35. And uh, then we'll move on to talking about the developmental history of the airplane, its initial operational test and evaluation. And then we'll do 
three separate episodes on the F-35A, B and C. So today is going to be talking about the things that led up to the program. We're probably not going to be going into too much detail around the specifics of the um, um, current or sort of uh, operational F-35, um, but we'll be talking about some of the concepts that are germane to it uh, in order to set the scene. So with that said then, Press, um, tell us a bit then about, uh, obviously you're, you're a, as a young guy, you weren't in the Air Force um, in 1992 when the Joint Strike Fighter Program was established by the US government. Um, but of course you would have been uh, downstream from that, you would have been seeing the implications of it and, and perhaps talking to guys or flying with guys who were around during the early 1990s. Um, tell us a bit about your understanding then, the fighter pilot's understanding of, of what drove the need for the F-35. You bet. So yeah, I will uh, pile on to your caveat there. So uh, I was obviously very early in my career, not yet introduced to the uh, world of fighter requirements in any way, but I was able to see things tangentially as both I was a student at the Air Force Academy. But even prior to that, my uh, father was uh, uh, a JAG, so Judge Advocate General. He, he worked for in the late 80s, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff up in the Pentagon. So I had a, a an unusual interest for a high schooler in the things of geopolitics and and uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, and what was going on there. Um, so that's kind of where I first got my interest in what was going on in the world. And then to set the stage a little bit, uh, in 1991, when Operation Desert Shield turned to Operation Desert Storm on the 17th of January. Back in the United States, that was actually the 16th of January, and that was my birthday. So I was convinced at that time that I was about to get uh, drafted because that was the only image I have of war was uh, watching Vietnam films and that sort of thing. So I figured in a year I'd be going off to, to war in Iraq. And then I watched, like everyone else, the first war that uh, was fully televised uh, watching CNN every night and seeing what's going on. And obviously one of the big things that was happening at that time was a different way of warfare where precision was so important. And then this new thing with the first public acknowledgement of uh, stealth and stealth fighters with the F-117 uh, taking out targets. And you had this juxtaposition of large forces with a large number of fighters going in to take down air defenses and suffering minimal, but a, a few losses along the way based on air defenses being up there. But then you had these single aircraft going in alone using this new thing called stealth technology that nobody really knew what it was at the time. Uh, and immediately understanding that there was some value here. So I think even myself as a high schooler, understanding that you can start to see where the Department of Defense and the Air Force and, and the Navy were looking at this and going, how do we really optimize this newfound technological advantage that we have? Because at that time, if you remember, the, uh, the Iraqi army was considered, I think, like the fourth strongest army in the world or something. And that, that I think, was more by a numbers game. But uh, the importance of the technological advantage was really hammered home there uh, to the public, at least, uh, with Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So I think that uh, started us down this road. And it's really something that had already been thought about prior to 
and you already had development of the F-22 happening, but you started to look at how much of our force do we need to be stealth? And I think based on the success of Desert Storm, that pendulum started to swing to, we need a, a large amount of our force to really have this capability to operate more autonomously, fewer numbers, more efficiency. And of course, the other thing that was going on at that time geopolitically was you had the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the fall of the Soviet Union there uh, in 1991. And so between those couple of things, where we started to look at, okay, we're not preparing for the masses. We're looking at new kinds of conflict. We're looking at a type of warfare where uh, the acceptability of losses has kind of changed a bit. And that got reinforced with Desert Storm. And so again, the stealth aspect and the survivability of platforms was becoming more important in the uh, in the national conscious of most countries of the West. So that, that was kind of going on in the background for the requirements development process for the JSF. You, you've referenced then the uh, F-117, and, and I think it was 1988 or 89 when the Air Force released that sort of air, heavily airbrushed photograph of it and everyone was sort of astounded by it. And prior to that, there had been some rumors. But so, so can you then just describe what stealth is? Because there's still, I think, uh, yeah. some misconceptions. It's multispectral. Um, you know, it doesn't just exist as a, as a, a radar cross-section consideration, for example. Um, you know, what is your take on, on stealth? How would you describe it? Um, to yeah, uh, Steve, stealth means it's completely invisible. It disappears. It's like putting <laughs> on a cloaking device. Now, that, that was, uh, it was a great mystery to me at the time. But uh, when it, it really comes down to stealth is all about two things. One of them is angles. Uh, and the other one is coding on the aircraft. So uh, what stealth does is it minimizes the range at which a uh, RF spectrum or a radio frequency spectrum uh, radar can detect something because the signal that's sent out for a radar is basically sent out and then the host radar system is listening for the return of that signal and how it reflects off of, you know, whatever is out there. And in this case, we're talking about an aircraft. So the, the theory kind of behind stealth is if you, if you can make the angles from which that signal is going to bounce off, go in a different direction, then effectively that host system that sent out that pulse and is listening for the return is not gonna be able to hear that return. Now, eventually you get close enough to that system that you're not gonna be able to do anything with angles because you have, it's not just the direct reflection, it's like the side of the reflection. And there's other ways that it, it can detect. So something called side lobes, but uh, in general, you're basically shrinking the effective range of the host radar system to be able to see, in this case, the aircraft. So that's what uh, the biggest component of stealth is. And then there's a little bit of a component of if you put the right coding onto the thing you're trying to hide, in this case, the aircraft or, or the things hanging on the aircraft, then maybe that coding can suck up some of that radar energy and not reflect it back. So between those two things, uh, you get stealth. And then the, the misconception is always that, you know, once you make something stealth, then you just can't see it. 
that's really not true either. Even with the radar, you can see it, and that's based on range. And the other thing is that's based on the angle at which you're actually um, flying towards or away from the radar. That makes a big difference as well. So stealth is not the same in all aspects, aspect being the angle that's measured from your tail to your nose. So it's different at different aspects as you look at, at a plane. Uh, and it's more effective in certain aspects than others. And, and so that's a big component from a tactical perspective of uh, being able to, you know, achieve a, a, a cloaked position or, or not give up your position is what is your angle in relation to the thing that's trying to detect you? And all that kind of goes into a, a pretty complex formula that makes up a end result of stealth. I think famously the the 117s also went in over Baghdad and they went in um, with no radio because they they sucked they 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 brought up the aerials so they didn't, weren't reflecting any radar energy and they had no way of communicating so they were radio silent as well so there are, so there are other elements to it as well aren't they you have to manage your transmissions Absolutely. anything anything being emitted from the airplane yeah the, what I just described with stealth is you got to realize that's only one spectrum of energy. So there are other systems. The biggest one is probably IR, so infrared spectrum. And those things about stealth, that's very specific to the radio uh, spectrum, which is what radar uses. It's not specific to IR. Another detection methodology, in addition to IR, is you have passive detection. And that is being able to listen to other things coming off of an aircraft. And so that's where you talk about the radio silence aspect of it. You can't just have stealth and think you're, you know, uh, immune to being targeted. You've got to have those other aspects to include infrared protection of yourself uh, and, and passive detection systems, being able to minimize their effectiveness. And there's other detection methods as well that are constantly evolving. So really that, Stealth is specific to the radar detection capability of an adversary. It just so happened in the 90s, that was the primary way for, especially at higher altitudes, that things were found. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. The other one is, is eyeballs, right? The optical detection. Uh, so that's just the, the visual spectrum, not even infrared. So all of those things combined together to uh, detect and potentially target an aircraft and stealth is just one facet of that. 
so we we can summarize then uh, that the air force had bought into stealth and uh, and at the same time i think it was um uh, dispensing with some other capabilities the electronic triad is is one of them so it decided to retire the f4g the f111 went away so this idea that you had to have a big gorilla package of 60 plus aircraft and it had to be supported by f4g and ef111 and ea6b and ec130 all those aircraft providing electronic suppression or kinematic suppression um w were not necessary if you've got an airplane where as you describe you can shrink the acceptable um, or the missile engagement zone of the enemy to a point where you can kill him before he can he can shoot at you. So that's what the Air Force is buying into. So, so can we talk a little bit then about what is driving that requirement in terms of the scenarios? Because you've just off, you're off the back of kicking the Iraqi Air Force um, in the butt, you know, demolishing the um, Iraqi army. Um, doing a fantastic job there. There's this old adage about sort of training for the last war you fought. Um, arguably, you don't actually have to have stealth in order to, to train for that war because you just did it pretty much with only a small number of stealth assets. But I'm guessing yeah. even though there's the fall of the Berlin Wall, nobody really knew what was going to be happening with Russia and the former Soviet republics. There's the Chinese equation too. As you went through the Air Force in the mid and late 1990s and you, you started flying the Viper, what sort of scenarios were you working with? What sort of threat assessments were you making in terms of you know, who you were going to be going up against and what what you were going to be going up against, the Su-27 flanker family, the MiG-29 uh, Falcon family, that kind of thing? Yeah, you bet. So uh, it, it, there was a lot of confusion in the 90s as to what would be the next threat. Uh, and there were all kinds of theories as to um, how are we structured as a force? Are we structured to fight? Uh, you know, and, and there were numbers designated to the different scales throughout the, the spectrum of conflicts. So at the at the higher end, how many high end conflicts against the best adversary you could come up with at the time? Like what kind of force would we need to face that threat? And then how many kind of like medium, like can, I would consider Iraq at the time a, a medium scale threat. How many of those conflicts could we handle? And then how many of these uh, conflicts other than war, they used to call them uh, uh, Mutwa, military operations other than war. That's what they, the terminology of it was back in the 90s. And so there was all these formulas and that would be defense policy would come up with like, we can do a one, two, five or, you know, some, whatever the numbers were, like we could handle simultaneously one big conflict against the best adversary that we could come up with at the time, or we could handle two conflicts against medium-sized adversaries simultaneously, or we could handle uh, you know, half of this one, one of these, and four of these moot laws. And so they'd come up with these formulas to kind of play this out. And it was, I don't know, I was a lieutenant, like that, that was a little too complex for me, but uh, that's the way force structure was being made. But in general, when you looked at stealth, the preponderance of the force was always going to be non-stealth capable uh, at that time. And so you're looking pretty far in advance before you start talking about a force structure that is predominantly stealth. Like that's, that's really not uh, in our, it's in our thought process, but it's so far down the road. What we're talking about at that time is we need a force that can kick down the door. That's exactly what you saw. And it all depends on who your adversary is. 
So I was very shaped uh, in the late 90s as I completed uh, the training pipeline and eventually ended up with my first operational assignment at Osan Air Base in Korea. I was very interested in North Korea. I mean, that was the threat du jour when I was sitting at Osan Air Base. Uh, and day one after the training pipeline landed at Osan Air Base and I'm I'm landing in, in a pretty foggy day on what they called the Freedom Bird. I'm looking out my window and I'm seeing the Patriot batteries that are lined up pointing north. And I'm like, wow, this is a uh, tip of the spear. And that's what they told us. And, and in the 90s, that was it. Like that was, you know, as as forward as, as you know, you could you could really get other than Operation Northern Watch, Southern Watch, where things happening where the conflict was pretty much over. In terms of a large scale conflict kicking off, the most likely was really Korea. And so that was the, the tip of the spear. And so uh, we didn't have stealth that was there on the peninsula. We had developed our tactics to do that takedown or at least the initial nights of the war using what we had there on Penn. And then the thought was, if there was a cleanup to happen, then maybe we could get some of the global strike assets that had some stealth capability with the B-2 and maybe some, uh, you know, F-117s could come in there from wherever they were coming. They could make it there in a few days, or if we had enough warning, maybe we could get them bedded down somewhere in the area so they could do some of that initial strike. And the the idea was to uh, to kick down the door, if you will, and to take down the air defenses. So that's what it was all about: take down the integrated air defenses, and that's the methodology that we uh, employed there during uh, Desert Storm. If you take down the air defenses and you blind them, now you can start to attrit as required the, uh, the, the ground forces and, and the, uh, you know, the, the other forces until you can finally turn the conflict. So that, that was the, the theory. I don't think it was intended at that time to think that we were gonna have an all stealth force anytime soon. And so we were gonna stage it and get enough stealth to be ready to handle the highest end worst case scenario uh, with enough stealth. You still need quite a bit of stealth if you're going in, into that highest end of conflict, whether you're talking former Soviet Union and we didn't know what's gonna happen there, whether we're talking about China or you know whatever the case uh, could be, uh, high end adversary, you're gonna need a pretty good number of stealth assets just to kick down the door. And then you still have the fourth gen force to uh, do the bulk of the strikes and carry the bulk of the weapons once that is complete. We'll, um, in, a, in a future episode, uh, when we talk about the F-35A, which, which of course is right in the, the sort of sweet spot of your expertise, we'll, we'll talk about specifics in terms of you know, sensors on the airplane. But um, while we're talking then about the concept of stealth, the concept of a day one capability to, to kick down the door, um, what other concepts were there you know around the development of the f-35 that have, have come into play i'm thinking sensor fusion net centric yeah. warfare that type of stuff what, are, what other things were being baked into the airplane yeah i think i think you nailed it there the biggest thing is really sensor fusion and so we talked stealth conceptually and, and kind of painted that picture let's talk sensor fusion conceptually and what is it and what are you trying to do um so the easiest way to do this is to go through an example. So I had an F-16 that I was flying in 
you know, the late 90s and through the early 2000s till about 2010. And that aircraft looked nothing like the aircraft that was rolled off in 1980. Okay, so when they started flying the F-16 in 1980, uh, it was pretty archaic in terms of the targeting systems and the things it could do. It didn't really have uh, a targeting pod that was integrated for IR, for infrared targeting. Um, the radar was more limited at that time. It went through some upgrades in the meantime. The radar warning receiver, you know, had, had a lot of limitations in its early days. And so there were a lot of things when the aircraft was fielded that did not resemble what I was flying even in the uh, in the late 90s, but they came on piecemeal. And so every time you get a new system, like let's take the targeting pod, for example, and you hang that on the jet. Now that's showing up on little, uh, uh, you know, four inch by four inch displays here. Uh, and that is just another sensor. And then you had things like uh, uh, Saddle, which is a, a data link system, which then eventually became Link 16. And that's on a, on a uh, horizontal situational display. And so that's like a map. And so that was a uh, staged process of development to get to even that. But before that we had uh, a thing where I could push a button on my radio and it would give me an instantaneous position of the members of my flight just with like a boom, snapshot in time like okay here's where everybody is and before that it was all visual so there was no way to be able to link up and know where each other are but that's another display on the f-16 and then i've got the rwr and that's another display over here and and i can only have two displays up on my larger screens at a time and then my radar well that's another display and then i had something called a maverick which is a uh, air to surface missile that was pretty much guided in as you're flying, you're, you're taking over and kind of flying that missile in. Well, that's another display. And so the problem with that is you very quickly exceed your ability to operate all those things effectively as the human in the loop, because you can't even put them on the screen at the same time. And so you've got this thing called a, a DMIS, which is a display management switch. And I'm popping through that DMIS, and that's our training is like pop through your DMIS and get to the things that you should be looking at at that time in a very fluid and dynamic, you know, combat scenario. And now I'm trying to flip through the different displays to get to the right thing to look at at the right time to make the right decision. And it all comes down to uh, two words and it's situational awareness. That's a tough thing to do. Uh, with displays that are being strapped onto the jet as they become available and piecemeal. So one of the big requirements for the F-35 was, or the Joint Strike Fighter at the time as the requirements were being written, the JSF, was how do we relieve the cognitive burden on the pilot who's trying to flip through all these displays? So you had these pilots who uh, were helping to write those requirements out and they were like, we've got to help with this process. And that's where sensor fusion is born uh, or the requirement for sensor fusion is born. And so what sensor fusion does is it takes all those different systems. Uh, it starts with them inherently in the jet, but it, then it also has a growth path for new systems as they come. And it says, instead of 
having it on different displays, let's put it all on one display. So that's the starting point. But then you have geographically, you have different systems that will... All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast and this Authentic Media Snapshot. If you like what you heard, head over to Authentic Media on your favorite podcast platform for complete episodes and a whole lot more. We'll see you next time. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.